Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris, where we discuss the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture, edited by Jim Harris, and music by Mike Hall. Hey listeners, today our podcast turns 21, by which I mean that you are listening to episode 21. And it is also our half anniversary. It has been six months since we launched the podcast, since this is March 15th, 2020. And we launched The Fanboy and the Hater on September 15th, 2019. Mike, can you believe it's been six months since we started the podcast? Well, Jim, you make it seem like much longer than that. <laughs> but it really has gone by pretty quickly. We just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to all of our listeners and supporters who have helped us out greatly over the last six months. We hope that you have enjoyed listening to the podcast so far and will continue to enjoy listening to the podcast far into the future. Thank you all very much. You are all awesome. This special episode of The Fanboy and the Hater is, in case you missed it, Volume 2. And it's comprised of clips from the previous 10 episodes of our podcast episode 11 through episode 20. Each clip is an edited excerpt from the episode and lasts about three to five minutes in duration. New listeners may find this an easier way to discover what this podcast is about, and all listeners may also find this episode a helpful way to decide which previous episodes you might like to listen to in their entirety. Without further ado, let's get started. Episode number 11 was our first Jimmy-sode, a mini-episode solo hosted by Jim. In this, I shared my perspectives about the Star Wars universe and explained why, for me, Star Wars canon ends with the return of the Jedi. Star Wars is one of our favorite topics on this podcast, in part due to how much I loved the original trilogy of Star Wars movies, A New Hope, the Empire Strikes Back, and The Return of the Jedi. Now, I'm not one of those Star Wars fans that tries to tell you that the original trilogy were the greatest movies ever made. They weren't. But I loved them, especially due to the time in my life that I experienced them. I was six years old when A New Hope came out, and it was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. And I was 12 years old when The Return of the Jedi came out. So those movies came along at a crucial part of my childhood and early adolescence, and it really would be difficult to impossible for me to love any movie franchise the way that I loved the original Star Wars movies. And it would be 16 years until we actually got new Star Wars canon, when in 1999, the prequel trilogy, The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. The prequels weren't great. It's easy to pick on them for having things like bad dialogue and an overuse of CGI, but I liked the prequels. Even if they had been better films, there's no way that I could have loved them the same way that I loved the original trilogy. It's still surprising to me that the prequels don't suck. 
Some people think that they do, but I would say, you know what, it's amazing that they were even able to tell a story that's good enough for me to like, given the fact that going into it, we knew exactly how the prequels were going to end. So again, they're not great, but I like those movies, and I can still enjoy them today. Because even though the overall movies aren't great, there's still scenes in every single one of those movies that I enjoy. We had a watershed moment in Star Wars history when in 2012, Disney acquired Lucasfilm. The biggest test of Disney Star Wars and where it could, if at all, fit into my Star Wars fandom would be how it would follow up the events of my beloved original trilogy and how it would conclude the so-called Skywalker Saga, which takes us to the sequel trilogy that began in 2015 with The Force Awakens, followed by 2017's The Last Jedi, and most recently, 2019's The Rise of Skywalker. As George Lucas himself said, he was disappointed with the lack of originality in The Force Awakens. The Last Jedi was horrible. The slow-motion space chase and the Casino Planet side quest really wasted a lot of valuable screen time. The other half of the movie, the Luke, Ray, Kylo, Snoke part of the movie, was the part of the movie that divided Star Wars fandom. However, it was neither as bad as the people who said they hated it said it was, nor was it as bold as the people who said that they loved it said it was. The first time I saw The Rise of Skywalker, I was deeply disappointed. The second time, I went in knowing that I didn't like the story, and I allowed myself to try to latch on to the ephemeral joy of the nostalgic fan service that is peppered throughout the movie. My biggest issue with the sequel trilogy is not its profound lack of imagination, but its profound lack of respect for the original trilogy, its heroes, and their story. But perhaps my greatest problem is that the ultimate battle of good versus evil, Jedi versus Sith, in the Skywalker saga, ends with one Palpatine battling another Palpatine. Really? This is how you honor the legacy of Star Wars and the original trilogy? However, not even Disney can make me hate Star Wars. Nothing can. Because actually, the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. And that's what Disney has achieved with the sequel trilogy. They have made me apathetic to the world of Star Wars beyond the original trilogy for what happens after the events of Return of the Jedi. Which is why what Star Wars is going to be for me. Everything established within the timeline of the prequel and original trilogies, in between and including The Phantom Menace and Return of the Jedi. That leaves the prequel and original trilogy in play, it leaves Clone Wars animated series, Star Wars Rebels, It even leaves Disney's two anthology films in play. But once we cross that boundary of Return of the Jedi, that's where, for me, I have to stop seeing that as canon and look at that part of the new Disney expanded universe the same way that I looked at the old expanded universe. That it's just commercialized fan fiction. Going forward, for me, Star Wars canon ends with Return of the Jedi. In episode number 12, Mike and Jim discuss and debate the first season of the Disney Plus show The Mandalorian, the first live-action Star Wars television series. 
if I was going to pick an area to create what Disney said, we want to tell, explore more of the Star Wars galaxy and tell new stories with new characters, I couldn't have picked a better choice than a Mandalorian story. And the reason for that is, I was really concerned that a Star Wars television show would have the same problem that the movies run into, that they would feel boxed in by the stories of the trilogies and be concerned about how they would connect or collide with them. And the reason why Mandalorian was so exciting was there's very little in-canon content. The planet Mandalore is part of a large part of a Star Wars galaxy that has been left largely unexplored because it was a part of an alliance of independent planets that never joined the Republic. They also remained neutral during the Clone Wars. They got conquered and occupied by the Empire, but their involvement in the Rebellion was very self-centered. It's like, we just want the Empire off of our planet. The other stories about Mandalore in canon, they're very anti-Force. They actually have a cultural distrust of anyone who uses the Force. That's the reason why you've never seen Mandalore or the Mandalorians in any of the live-action movies. What a wonderful way to have a safe storytelling space where you don't have to worry about getting pulled into the whole Empire, Republic, Jedi, Sith thing. But instead, the only thing I ever hear when I hear someone allegedly talk about this show, Baby Yoda is so cute! It's a marketing gimmick to get non-Star Wars fans to watch it, But that's exactly the point. How many more are they bringing into fandom because they love Baby Yoda? It didn't need to be there. I know the hook for the kids. Yeah, exactly. The hook for the non-Star Wars fans. And they're going to sell a ton of Baby Yoda merch. We've seen bits and pieces of it in the background, bits and pieces of it with other characters. That if Baby Yoda wasn't in the show, it seems like there was an interesting story that could have been told. And if they could have focused on that, then I think the show could have been awesome. But instead, Disney has seemingly decided to go with, ah, some instead by focusing on Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda ruins the Mandalorian for me. Because it puts at the center of the story a force-powerful being that is the same race as one of the most powerful Jedi's of all time, and then does the other thing that I didn't want to see this TV series do, connect to or make me think about the stories of the live-action movies. Not just the movies, all of the other in-canon content that comes before or after where The Mandalorian is set in the Star Wars timeline. Yeah, but on the other hand, that is what makes Star Wars great, is those questions that creates discussion In fairness, unless you get dragged down by Baby Yoda like I am, there really isn't anything in the television series that explicitly forces you to think about the movies. I put all of that weight on Baby Yoda. You're thinking ahead and thinking back and piecing all everything together. For me, the series, I liked it a lot. If it wasn't a Star Wars series, probably would have waited a few years before I watched it. But I think it would work still. I think it would still be good even if it wasn't Star Wars. For me, this got a malfunctioning jetpack. Um, <laughs> a malfunctioning jetpack is still a jetpack. It's still really cool. The series had some misfires. It malfunctions from time to time, but it was still a fun ride. You still got to ride a jetpack around. Parts of the series go really slow. Other parts seem to like really rushed. I really wish they would have eliminated the uh, Tatooine episode and made the last two episodes into three episodes. 
give them time to explain because they really rushed the end to me. But overall, it was a fun story. For me, as I explained a little bit earlier, I've decided to view anything in Star Wars that's set after The Return of the Jedi as being non-canon. So to me, this was just like a bad Legends novel or beginning of a series of Legends novels that I don't like. Episode 13 is a Jimmy-sode, a mini-episode solo-hosted by Jim. In this one, the Netflix series Medical Police is used as an example of what spoofs say about storytelling. Parodies or spoofs are generally dumb-funny, meaning they're frequently dumb, occasionally funny, and most of their comedic value comes not from their scenes themselves, but what those scenes are making fun of. Regular listeners know that I most often play the role of hater on this podcast, and most of the time what I'm hating on is bad storytelling. The use of contrived or convenient plotting, the overuse of cliches and tropes, the tendency for stories to be driven by action instead of action-driven stories, by which I mean that most shows, even if they're not action-oriented, seem to think that storytelling is only to loosely connect a series of action scenes. And I often criticize unnecessary subplots, underexplained plot lines, using a plot twist simply for the sake of using a plot twist, or using a plot twist to try to make a boring character or story seem more interesting than either really is. Using a lot of misdirection or intentionally misleading storylines to hide the fact that it's really an incredibly simple story underneath it all. Or glaring plot holes, underdone or completely absent character development, lazy writing, and just generally bad storytelling. Which is why I like to occasionally watch spoofs such as Medical Police, because they intentionally use bad storytelling techniques and serve them up as exaggerated examples of what happens when storytelling is bad, they help us understand why things in non-spoof shows are not as good as they should be. Now, Medical Police is not a great show. I would argue it's probably not even a good show. There are definitely better things for you to spend your time watching. But you know what? There also are a lot worse shows out there. And Medical Police is actually better than a lot of shows that should be better than it. And that's what all good spoofs teach us about bad storytelling. In episode number 14, Mike and special guest Reese investigate one of Reese's favorite comic book characters. The Man of Steel, the last son of Krypton, the Man of Tomorrow, the Big Blue Boy Scout, <laughs> Supes, Kal-El, Clark fucking Kent, we're talking about Superman. One of our friends, Reese is joining us, I'm going to let you say your last name. Munger, like younger with an M. What about Superman in particular really drew you in? It's kind of the everyday part of Superman, the Clark Kent, how he goes from being a mild-mannered reporter to being the Man of Steel, how he can go from an everyday persona to 
being the man of steel and still holding on to his ideals of truth, justice in the American way, and how he's just kind of a good person even in normal situations. So you're more of a fan of Clark Kent than you are Superman. I would say I love the action in Superman. I love the villains he fights. But yeah, it's really like the persona of Clark Kent. The humanity involved with it. Yeah, the humanity in the Man of Steel. How do you see how Superman and Clark Kent relate to each other? Clark Kent is Clark Kent for the majority of the day. And it's only when he has to go out and save somebody that he dons the cape to protect his secret identity and those of his friends around him. However, you cannot separate Superman from Clark Kent after the first time he's donned the cape, because it does become part of who he is, just a separate part of him than Clark Kent. So they're both the same person, but they're different aspects of the same person. Superman is always Superman. His costume is Clark Kent. I would have to say I disagree 100%. He is Clark Kent, period. He grew up in Smallville from the time he was around three years old is when he came over. He was raised by Jonathan and Martha Kent. All of his morals are instilled by them. What actor is your favorite portrayal? Movie-wise, it's Christopher Reeves. But I also love Tom Welling in Smallville. He plays a uh, great teenage Superman, even though I think he was 26 when he started. And then Dean Cain's portrayal of Clark Kent and Lois and Clark. I like Lois and Clark because the special effects do still hold up. They didn't try and go big with all their special effects. They tried Mm -hmm. to keep them minimal, acceptable. Because it's more of a human story than a Superman story. Do you think anybody has played the character poorly? I don't think so. Is he difficult to play? I think he's easier to play than Batman Bruce Wayne. I think he's far easier to play than mm. Batman and Bruce Wayne. Kind of the issue I have with the current Batman movies, and I think they could take a page out of Clark Kent's Superman, and they could develop the relationship between Batman and Bruce Wayne better in a movie. I agree. Once you had done that with like a new Batman actor, the rest of the movies would become easier. Henry Cavill's Superman is great. He's a very physically imposing person you know he's got the muscles a square chin but the clark kent in that regard is an afterthought yeah he's on the farm in justice league trying to find himself again after being revived but it's basically once he leaves the farm he's just superman yeah it's just a nod to the farm that he grew up on like it's not actually clark kent it's just superman trying to find himself again i think henry canville superman is one of my favorite portrayals just simply because he shows that conflict of, I've got to be careful, I've, I don't want to hurt anybody. He tries to stay upbeat, but he's also very serious at the same time. It's also a step forward into modern CGI, modern special effects. The scene where the Justice League is fighting him at the monument to him, and like you see Flash like running super speed. That's my favorite part. And of the then movie. Superman just kind of turns to them and starts following him. Because Superman is also super fast. And you see, like, Flash, start, like, his eyes get wide and he starts like, to freak out. He's, he's like, like, oh, shit. This guy is fast. <laughs> shit. That's my favorite part of that movie. It is an amazing CGI and amazing special effects fight scene. I don't know if he's my favorite just because the effects have caught up mm-hmm. to be able to portray him better or if it's the actor portrayal. 
I haven't quite been able to figure that out. There's not enough there for me to decide. More Clark Kent out of him to decide that. Yeah. In episode number 15, we discussed and both fanboy over one of our favorite animated feature films. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is not only the best Spider-Man movie, it is also the best comic book superhero movie. I mostly agree. This was a very amazing movie. As a comic book fan, I love the way that they mixed animation styles together from the different types of books. And I love the way the movie ended up feeling like a comic book in motion. To me, the number one thing that made me enjoy this movie is that it was obvious that the people that were making the movie were fans of the source material. The directors said that they had intended the film to be experienced like you had walked inside a comic book, and it definitely has that feel to it. And one thing that I, I really like about this movie, I'm kind of calling it the heart of Spider-Man, is they really got the feeling of what drives Spider-Man. They really got that feel of got the weight of the world, going to do whatever it takes, always going to get back up, but still making the joke. They just really got that nailed down in this movie and how it's the same in the different versions of Spider-Man. E even though they're very different characters, that drive is still the same. The drive is definitely still the same. The blend of the funny slash serious, especially in the Peter Parker characters, had that quippiness, the one-liners, or, or executed perfectly. The other thing I also liked about the Peter Parker characters is the Peter Parker Spider-Man duality was also well done. The other thing from a storytelling perspective that I really enjoyed about the movie was not only was there great characterization and depth of characters with the spider people, but even the bad guys had better depth to them. The bad guys had plans and motivations that weren't just evil for, for the sake of being evil. Well, and that's on par for Spider-Man villains in general. And I think the reason that Spider-Man has always stayed at the top as far as popularity for comic books is his rogues gallery. And I think a big part of that is because they made them like real people. That's kind of just the ongoing theme in Spider-Man villainy is there's, there's a reason, there's a very human reason why this person became not necessarily evil, but just doing bad things. We've talked in previous episodes about how people have a tendency to just think that animation is just for kids, and therefore it doesn't have the capacity to tell a more serious or more adult stories. Death actually plays a pretty major part in the entire story of the movie, and it's done very well. And the emotional depth that they give the characters when dealing with the death, whereas in other animations, when there's a death, they kind of gloss over it. They don't really linger on it because they want to move on because it's for kids. The fact that they actually spent time showing how the different characters had whoever their close relative or whatever that died that led them to becoming the spider person, how that still weighs on them years later emotion in general how just how deep the emotion is throughout this whole movie it's not like it's so serious that kids can't see it again animations it's not just for kids it can have serious and, and depth to the stories my metaphorical rating for this was it's a custom-built web shooter this movie is perfectly made it's true to the characters it functions seamlessly and i just hope they don't run out of web fluid as they move forward 
Well, my metaphorical rating is it was a well-versed spidey sensation. <laughs> the movie works for all audiences. It doesn't require you to know anything about Spider-Man, even though it's probably best if you do, but you don't have to. It's also amazing to me how much story is packed into one movie, showing that you can draw on a lot of, and even previously unused comic book material, to tell an amazing story without it having to be like the culmination of dozens of live-action movies. This was kind of like a, a new character and a team-up movie all at once. So the fact that they were able to do all of that in one movie and have it not be like busy and confusing to people is just amazing to me. I would really like to see more comic book and superhero movies go into their animated verse and do something like this. In episode number 16, Mike and Jim discuss Crisis on Infinite Earths, the 2019-2020 CWDC Arrowverse television series crossover event spanning episodes of Supergirl, Batwoman, The Flash, Arrow, and Legends of Tomorrow. Neither of us liked it. Jim, why don't you go ahead and start us off on why we didn't like it? Why, thank you, super friend. Even before I watched this, I was pretty much ready to end my watch of the DCCW shows. I've really becoming increasingly disappointed with the storytelling on all of the DCCW shows. I've been very underwhelmed by it. So I went into this crossover event saying that maybe this will be the only thing I'll do. I'll just watch the crossover events because I liked last year's crossover event, even though I didn't like last year's shows. But for me, this is by far not only the worst DCCW crossover event, but I think it's the worst story ever told on any of the DCCW series. And yes, that even means it's worse than the first season of Legends of Tomorrow. I really wanted to like it because I'd heard a lot of positive things, especially about the cameos. So I started watching it and I don't think I've ever said the fuck so many times in a short amount of time in watching the series. I binged all of them in one day. Overall, what destroyed the storytelling for me was they were trying to adapt this large thing and changing the characters to fit these characters and then trying to somehow incorporate the continuity of each show into this crossover event adaptation. And just they struggled doing that to a point where it just didn't work at all. They changed so much to force it to fit that it ended up the story getting lost to me. It's the two general fundamental flaws of these events that happen in all of the crossover events. Because these are individual episodes within the separate shows. This was told across five uh, episodes across five different shows. Mm -hmm. So they kind of all start out with a little bit of, we have to kind of pick up the story from where we, where we were in the individual show and then transition into this thing that will get picked up on the next show. But then the next show also has to start with, well, let's, this is where we are on this show. And now we're going to slowly transition into the bigger story. So time gets a little bit wasted and they spend a little bit too much time trying to make it more of a continuity. And then, yeah, it just kind of starts to fall apart a bit because it starts to waste some time. The other general weakness of, or fundamental flaw of these crossovers is in the comic books, they have the entire DC universe to play with. In this, we have basically the characters from the Arrowverse. 
which there aren't a lot of them, but the other thing is the characters from the Arrowverse also have to play the primary roles. Mm-hmm. So that's why Oliver Queen has to have a big role, why Barry Allen and Kara have to have big roles because they're the big stars of the shows. So you can't bring in the bigger names from the DC universe and have them be like the entire story revolve around them, mm-hmm. which you can do in the comics. So that's already that fundamental flaw with the way they do any of the crossover events, but it was glaringly weak in, in this one. It really seemed like this whole, the whole event was just a long winded way to say goodbye to, to Stephen Arnell as green arrow and bring the worlds together. Like they didn't know how to do it. They're like, Hey, we want, we want to do that. But we also somehow want to have some sort of event where we have a bunch of cameos. Hey, let's put all that together and just shove it into five episodes, but somehow make them long. I don't know what. I almost think they were fucking with us. (laughs) So where they're they're like, hey, we're going to call it this big, cool thing. And we're going to try to pretend like we're going to do a big, epic thing. But we're going to somehow draw it out longer than it has to be, but still compact way too much into a short amount of time. Uh, Maybe that's the genius of the storytelling is they somehow did that. I don't know. There were things to enjoy. But like you said, they're struggling with story. They're struggling with writing. And it's becoming, because of the types of shows they are, they have to be soap opera-ish. But I think they're leaning too heavy on the soap opera-ish. And it's failing the series. (laughs) You have failed this series? (laughs) For me, like the key takeaways were, okay, now all of the current DCCW television shows are now set on the same Earth. We also saw where the rest of the DC properties are. So the DC streaming television shows are each set on their own Earth. My other key takeaway is that the DC cinematic universe begrudgingly acknowledges the existence of the DC television universe for the first time. But it would not be caught dead being set on the same Earth. In episode number 17, we had just come back from the movie theater and we discuss and debate, almost entirely avoiding spoilers, the 2020 DC film Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. I'm the one they should be scared of. I went into this movie with relatively low expectations. I wasn't expecting this to be a great movie. I was just looking for an enjoyable film. It was not bad, but it certainly wasn't great. It might not even be good, but it is definitely entertaining in parts and has some funny moments and some good performances. What's your initial take on it, Mike? Fairly similar. I I thought it was a fun movie. I did have some issues. I had to take my comic book nerd hat off in order to enjoy it because there's a lot of things that did not mesh well with what I know of some of the characters. I think it's an enjoyable movie, especially if you take off your comic book cap and you just watch it for a movie, forget what you know about the characters, and just go for the ride. There are things, if you put your comic book fan hat back on, there are a lot of things you can enjoy, but a lot of things will annoy you as well. I would say it's a borderline good movie. But overall, I enjoyed it. I don't know that I'm going to watch it repeatedly like I normally do comic book-based movies. 
but it was worth watching at least once. I don't know if I needed to see this movie while it was still in the theater. I didn't really think it was a must-see movie going in, and after having seen it, I know it wasn't a must-see movie. Yeah, I kind of felt like it was, it's almost like a movie version of Arrowverse, about that quality. It really seemed underdeveloped for a full-length movie. I think they had a relatively low budget, which might explain its Arrowverse-level quality. There is a really impressive fight choreography in this movie, and some of the action scenes and the martial arts-esque hand-to-hand combat-type scenes in this movie are particularly impressive. Yeah, I agree. There are times where it's just kind of a by-the-book fight scene, but then there's other times where they get really creative. And that's really where it stands out for me. And I think it was just a brilliant execution for this type of movie. They didn't go over the top with brutality. You would think that they might have because they got the R rating and they had the licensing to do so. But I don't think they did. They didn't go over the top like they could have. Do you need to really know a lot about Harley Quinn to be able to enjoy this movie? I don't think you need to, but it helps. Margot Robbie did a very good job portraying the Harley Quinn that was written for her. She was better as the character in this movie than in Suicide Squad. I think Suicide Squad struggled with that character because they wrote for her almost like a cosplay impersonation of the character. I think in this movie, she did as well as she possibly could, like anybody could have. With the character, again, the way the character is written. I, I think the, the parts in this movie where the character failed is because the writing failed. I think they took artistic license in doing specific things through this movie that didn't work for me. But they also, there's a lot of open doors for artistic license that they could have done that would have made this a better movie, or more entertaining movie even, that they didn't do. Parts of the movie are quite entertaining even if the overall movie is just okay to borderline good. Yeah. It's probably closer to just okay. Definitely not bad. There really isn't anything negative about the movie. It's just not great. Agreed. Okie dokie. Okay, Puddin'. Episode number 18 is a spoiler-filled philosophical, tangent-laden, character-driven journey to a Peabody and Hugo award-winning comedy television series. We're talking about The Good Place! Holy mother-forking shirtballs! The show quickly cemented itself as a legacy in my mind as one of the best shows in history wow absolutely love everything about this show it's got a just a great mixture of comedy and thought-provoking material that the way they mix them is just nothing short of genius in my head i said wow but i completely agree that it is one of the best shows of all time there's not a single episode that i don't like and there's not a single point where i'm saying okay i get it can you move on now none of that ever happens which if jim Never thinks that. This show deserves all of the awards. (laughs) I concur. (laughs) I also did greatly appreciate that it was philosophical, not religious. And its underlying questions really are, 
what does it mean to be a good person? Why should you be a good person? And if you're not a good person, can you become a better person? Two of the things I enjoy most in this world are comedy and deep thinking. And that's the brilliance of this show is the way that those two work together. So I can watch this over and over again and still be entertained. But also, there is so much deeper in this show that it's so easy to just go off and just start thinking about what does this mean? What does this mean philosophically? What does this mean to me personally? And how can I bring this into my own life to make myself a better person? I like shows that make me laugh. And I like shows that make me think. But I love shows that make me do both. One of the things I loved about this show is I used to read a lot of philosophy. I am very grateful to this show for reminding me and for making me laugh at the same time. I think this show, if I were to bring it all down to one thing, even if you think you're a good person, you're probably not. And you should probably try to figure out what that thing that makes you not a good person is and maybe try to work on that. It goes back to a point that Michael made at one point during the show. What matters isn't if people are good or bad. What matters is trying to be better today than you were yesterday. My own personal morality, I focus on myself and try to make myself happy. And if I can bring other people up with me, I will. If I can sacrifice a little bit of time or effort to help other people, I will show ends on that point of giving you a fictional idea about what the afterlife is like, but it's also a show about, hey, don't be a dick. Try to be a good person. Everyone should at least try. So in essence, the whole show is about, it's okay to be a hater. Just, Just don't, don't be, be a, a dick. dick. To paraphrase the show's final words, with all the love in my heart and all the wisdom in the universe, Watch The Good Place, and take it sleazy. Episode number 19 is a Jimmy-sode, a mini-episode solo-hosted by Jim, in which I ask, what the alternative F? As I examine why we use alternatives to swear words on television. You're gonna say shit on television? You can't say shit on television! While it has become rather common to be able to say shit on television, even more common is the use of alternative swear words, where basically shows invent words as substitutes for swear words in order to get past a censor or profanity filter. You're fucking sneaky bastard. And it's really those alternative swear words that are the main subject of this episode. Because when we hear those alternatives, we know what words they're being substituted for. You know I'm trying to say ashhole and not ashhole, right? I got that, yes. Fuck you! I think she said feck. What's the difference? And that's exactly my point. What's the difference between saying fork or feck or... I don't give a fuck. Versus saying fuck, fuck, I don't give a fuck. And those are certainly not the only alternative Fs. There are so fracking many. If you're offended by profanity or you're concerned about your children hearing profanity without your consent, I can understand why you would look at swearing on television 
as being a warhead of shit coming right at you. But I think it's also important to acknowledge the arbitrariness and subjectivity of what is considered profane. George Carlin's seven dirty words are often cited as an example, but those are not the only bad words. They might not even be the worst words. I told him to mind his language. So as you mind the forking language used on television, I ask you to think about the shazbot that mother frackers, cloth prunkers, and jagweeds freling use as gorum alternative swear words and smegging yell blurg. Because if you know what they and I are really saying, then what the alternative F? In episode number 20, we discussed two things that come up often on this podcast, spoilers and rewatchability. Hey Mike, you love spoilers, right? If you want to see a grown-ish man throw a childlike fit, spoil a movie that I'm excited for. <laughs> the reason I don't like spoilers so much is because what determines rewatchability for me is the emotional connection I have with the movie or the TV show or whatever it is. And if it's spoiled for me, I don't develop as strong of an emotional reaction to it. So okay. like, if I know what's going to happen already, I'm going, oh, this is where this part happens in the first watch. Now, I've already seen this, and so I'm not in it. How is that different than on the first rewatch, it's already kind of pre-spoiled? Yeah. So how is that different than before? Because I already have that emotional anchor okay. to it. So I'm feeling the same things I felt the first time I watched it because I'm remembering how I felt the first time I watched it. So is that what you're rewatching for is to rekindle the feeling of watching it the first time? Partially, but also the rewatching it is where I'm picking it apart and I'm looking at, okay, where are the plot holes? How do the plot, how does the plot work? How doesn't it work in the areas where it doesn't work? Are there other things that happen through the movie that can explain why it works that aren't otherwise obvious. I'm looking at things in the background that you don't normally catch. So that's the stuff that I'm looking for. I'm looking at all the details. That's where I'm really diving into the nuts and bolts of it while still having that emotional anchor. But if I don't get that first emotional anchor, I don't care to do that. Spoilers don't bother me at all, especially for me nowadays, because there are just so many things to watch. I often use spoilers to help me decide what I should watch. Also, I use it to focus my attention on the key plot points. Yeah, I know what's coming. Knowing what's coming lets me pay attention to what happens up until that point. Which is some of the things that you do on the first or subsequent rewatches. I just use the spoilers to help me just jump right to that on the very first watch of something. To me, it saves me the need to rewatch some things. I don't rewatch to recover or rekindle the emotional anchor or something like that. I rewatch something because I really enjoyed it enough that I do want to watch it again because it was so good. Or I do want to look for things I may not have seen the first time through. Right. But for me, sometimes by getting it spoiled, I watch it once and that's all I need to watch of things. Just because I decide not to rewatch something doesn't automatically mean it's bad. Yeah, it just means you don't enjoy it. Well, no, I enjoyed it enough, yeah. but not that I don't need to see it again. So we have two different perspectives on spoilers, which is why 
we hear Mike complain a lot about spoilers. A lot. A lot. So we definitely have a different perspective on spoilers. Our rewatchability is somewhat similar. It's yeah. a key metric for determining was something good or bad, and definitely it was something good to great. Yeah. What I found interesting in this conversation and something I've been kind of thinking about as we've been doing this podcast and listening to how you think about particular movies versus how I do is what we enjoy about movies and TV shows and what we're looking at and looking for. I think that's an interesting thing and in, in why, why we argue about movies so much and, and stuff is we're looking at it from such different perspectives. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I find that interesting. And that's it for Volume 2 of In Case You Missed It, which played clips from the previous 10 episodes of The Fanboy and the Hater, episodes 11 through 20. And in case you missed it, Volume 1 was published back on November 2nd of 2019, and it had clips from the first eight episodes of our podcast. Once again, this special episode was commemorating our half anniversary because it has been six months since we launched The Fanboy and the Hater. Heartfelt thanks to all of our listeners and supporters. You are all awesome. Thank you for listening to Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating. Write a review. Reach out to us on Twitter at FanboyandHater. Email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for Android and iOS. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Once again, thanks for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater.